0: It's Monday, June 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Protests around the country are erupting into violence, vandalism, and looting. Protests against police brutality and in support of George Floyd have been hijacked and are detracting from the original message. Curfews have been set in more cities, and the National Guard has been called in to back up police in about 16 states. Steve Gregory, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles, was at the destructive protests over the weekend in LA and joins us for what he saw and reactions from business owners who got their businesses ransacked. Next, while unrest continues across the country, concerns about the coronavirus pandemic still remain. We are still waiting for a treatment or vaccine, but there's also some uncertainty to immunity for those that have had the disease and recovered. We still don't know for how long someone might be protected from COVID-19 after they have gotten it. And in your body, it's not just antibodies that are fighting the virus, B-cells and T-cells also help fight illnesses after antibodies have disappeared. Catherine Wu, science reporter at Smithsonian Magazine, joins us for why immunity to the coronavirus is so complicated. It's news without the noise, let's dive in. We will use the law to reestablish your liberty, to reestablish and save lives. But we cannot do that when folks are lighting fires, shooting at our officers, throwing at projectiles, and escalating things up. Joining us now is Steve Gregory, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us, Steve.
1: Always a pleasure, Oscar.
0: Wanted to talk a little bit about the protests going on around the country after the death of George Floyd by police officer Derek Chauvin, uh, after he put his knee on his neck. There's been protests going on all across the country, and they've been intensifying, uh, leading to violence, looting, all all sorts of crazy stuff has been happening. Uh, Obviously, it started in Minneapolis. Atlanta had a particularly bad moment. I think Philadelphia is getting some of it. But over the weekend, also, Los Angeles kind of devolved into this whole thing it all started with a protest. It was a Black Lives Matter protest. And then throughout the day, things just got worse and worse. So much so that cities are imposing curfews. Uh, about 5,000 National Guard troops have been activated and I think 16 states total. Steve, you were out in Los Angeles covering some of that. Start us off by talking about the presence of the National Guard. What does that mean and how do they act with the public?
1: You know, the National Guard is only there to be a support mechanism. The National Guard does not have arrest powers. That's got to come down from the top, from the federal government. So what happens is when a National Guard is uh, activated for security purposes like this, they'll act as a support sort of secure the area. They will uh, create checkpoints for people coming in and out of areas that might be blocked off to the public. They'll also guard uh, businesses. They'll they'll figure out ways to put up secure perimeters so that people can't get into those areas. Mostly, they're there to keep people out of areas so that firefighters can get in and clean up messes. Store owners can get in there and clean up their messes, sweep up the broken glass, get the dumpsters off the streets. So basically, a national guard's presence it's twofold. One, it's the optics. You know, I think the presence of a military establishment in someone's city sort of conveys the message that we're serious and uh this has gotten really out of control and the second part is it frees up police officers to go home and get rest you know because they were working a lot of overtime The city was on tactical alert, which means every employee of the department is subject to being called out. And for the first time in 20 years, every sworn officer of the Los Angeles Police Department was activated. And that's why the National Guard's presence is important, because they can help pick up the slack where the police department can't do it.
0: Watching this play out on television, it seemed that the cops were armed with rubber bullets. They had batons. They had shields in some cases. What is the National Guard armed with?
1: Well, the National Guard is armed with typical AR-15s. It's the standard standard issue. Now, it's my understanding that only in some areas will they show an armed presence. Most other areas, it's just their physical presence that's enough and could be enough. But they they are armed, and they don't have a rules of engagement officially. Uh, The only time that they can really use the weaponry is if they are engaged in a um, basically life-or-death situation.
0: Let's move on to a little bit what was happening in Los Angeles. And as I said, this is happening all over the country, but Steve, you and I live in Los Angeles, so we're uh, you know, a little more familiar with the details here. What happened that where things went wrong? the the it all started as a Black Lives Matter protest in a park in the Fairfax district, which is a popular area where there's a lot of shops and whatnot. And then soon thereafter, everything just started getting heated. There was multiple cop cars that were set on fire, vandalism, spray painting, graffiti all over the place. It just went haywire.
1: Well, and as you mentioned, we both live in Los Angeles, so we both have seen a lot of these types of protests over the years. I have to say this rates right up there is one of the worst I've seen, one of the most intense, only because this crowd felt more emblazoned. They felt more empowered for whatever reason. They felt like they could get by with more, push the envelope even further. Uh, but you're right. What usually starts out as a, as a very mild sort of peaceful protest in March in Pan Pacific Park, uh, it, it quickly turned ugly. Now, what happens is that you always have this core of agitators, and these agitators come from various groups. Now, in Los Angeles, we know them as the fascist, or the fascist groups or the uh, these other factions of other organizations that are very anti-government. But what they do is they come in and they infiltrate these otherwise very peaceful groups. And all they do is they'll, they'll throw projectiles, which could be frozen water bottles, rocks, sticks, whatever, at police officers. And that immediately changes the whole dynamic because now officers are in a protective mode and they have to get into a defensive mode and that's when things start getting ugly because then when that happens the police show more of an aggressive presence the crowd gets agitated it gets worked up and all it takes and it's sort of this mob mentality once things start rolling it's hard to dial it back it just sort of intensifies and rolls and continues to build and build and build until you get what you saw last night and that's police cars set on fire stores getting looted and just people don't they just don't even care they don't care who sees them they don't care if they're being videotaped they go in they loot offices they they loot storefronts it doesn't really matter and it's only because a group of agitators knows exactly what they're doing they know if they get in there and they stir it up they've become very uh, adept at stirring up crowds and getting police upset
0: Yeah, I'm watching this. It definitely seemed like at least three different types of groups that were there. People that were protesting for the right reasons, against police brutality, in support of George Floyd. Then it seemed, like you said, these agitators that were there to kind of get it on with the cops. And then beyond that, even the looters, people that seemed like they weren't even part of the initial protest, driving up in cars, running in a storefront, getting as much as they could, and then leaving. So it seemed like there was a lot of different groups out there. And the people that you spoke with, What was the sense that you got? Did you were able to speak to any of these so-called agitators that were just open about them just wanting to cause mayhem?
1: Sure. You know, I had situations where some didn't like me being there. They were very upset at me because now the media has become a target in the media now have become a a pretty big uh, part of the angst that they're going through. In fact, I had one group tell me that they thought I was part of the problem. I was part of the big issue, the bigger issue. So I step back. I respect the boundary. But I have others that will tell me that they're upset and they're disappointed because they wanted to come down, convey their message. They had signs that say, you know, enough police brutality. Uh, You know, they, they have, you know, regular people, just everyday people from all different backgrounds, shapes, sizes, colors, genders, Uh, face everyone coming together because they have a common goal. And that is to convey their message that they're tired of police brutality. But then again, I talked to others that they have absolutely no idea what the big picture is. In fact, one guy I spoke with couldn't even remember George Floyd's name. He couldn't remember the name of the guy that got killed by the officer. And that's, that's part and parcel to what happens here. It, it attracts people from everywhere, all different types of groups, but it always starts with that core of people who set out, as you mentioned, for all the right reasons, and then it quickly turns ugly. And
0: what happens after that is that the message gets lost. This becomes the story now, the looting, the rampaging, the violence. Right. And people that started off there protesting in support of George Floyd and against uh, you know, the cop, Derek Chauvin, who's been charged now with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. That message, that whole part of it, Gets lost, Steve. I also wanted to ask because there was a ton of looting. There was a lot of uh, big shops and, and people. There's a shopping center there known as the Grove. People broke into the Apple Store there and to Nordstrom and started looting there. But there's also a bunch of smaller businesses along those streets that also got looted. You had a chance to speak some of those to some of those business owners. Yeah. What was their reaction?
1: They were just so disappointed because a lot of those business owners are minorities and the ones I spoke with last night, uh, I spoke to Armenian, Hispanic, Rwandan. Um, I spoke to all different minorities last night, and they were all so disappointed because they all said, we have all gone through our own discrimination. We've all been mistreated by government. We've all been mistreated by law enforcement. So they understand the pain that a lot of these people are going through and what the protests mean, but they just can't wrap their head around the fact that They they can't equate trying to convey the message with stealing their merchandise. They just don't understand how that honors the the memory of George Floyd by stealing, you know, a $4,000 iMac system and or, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of tennis shoes. They can't wrap their head around that. And the one guy I spoke with who owns a vintage store there on Melrose in the Melrose Shopping District, they put their life savings into this. They've been there for 10 years and they sell all kinds of very high, highly priced collectibles. Clothes from back from the 50s and 60s, and his store was completely trashed. I stood there talking to him, and his voice was shaking at times. He, was, he started out very angry, and then his voice started to shake, and it was very emotional for him, because clothes are laying all, all over the floor, there's glass everywhere, they stole his safe. Um, he said the damage and the losses are in tens of thousands of dollars
0: just a sad situation to see. Obviously, we, there is this ongoing unrest throughout the country with regards to what happened with George Floyd and others. You know, it's not just him. This is just the latest catalyst for these types of protests. But we want them to be civil. We want them to be peaceful and get that message across in that way. And it's just a shame when this stuff happens. But it seems like it's not going to stop anytime soon. There's protests continuing throughout the next few days. And as I mentioned, curfews are set and National Guard has been activated in about 15 to 16 states now. So we'll have to keep watching out what happens there. Steve Gregory, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Always a pleasure.
2: The way that I sort of look at this is a lot of people by now have heard of antibody tests these are the tests that search in your blood for those immune molecules that your body makes in response to a pathogen that's trying to infect you. Kind of like dusting for fingerprints after a crime has occurred at a crime scene.
0: Joining us now is Catherine Wu, science reporter at Smithsonian Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Catherine.
2: Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here.
0: I wanted to talk about the coronavirus, COVID-19. We've been battling this for some months now. And one of the things that we haven't had a chance to really wrap our head around is immunity from the virus. Once you get it, are you even completely immune from it? And there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. It's pretty complicated in the way it works in our bodies. So Catherine, help us out a little bit to understand why immunity to this has been so complicated so far.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that you're looking into this because it's such a complicated question. And I think during such a chaotic time, when there are lives at stake, people really want clear-cut answers, and I am had to report that we don't have a lot of those right now. I think the most important takeaway at this point is that even though we have tests and a lot of people working very hard on this disease and how to fight it, we don't really have clear-cut answers on whether or not people are going to be protected from getting infected with the virus a second time, even if they've recovered from a bout of COVID-19. The way that I sort of look at this is a lot of people by now have heard of antibody tests. These are the tests that search in your blood for those immune molecules that your body makes in response to a pathogen that's trying to infect you, kind of like dusting for fingerprints after a crime has occurred at a crime scene. It's evidence that something has been in your body, but that's a very past focused look at the disease. It doesn't tell you a whole lot about the future.
0: Yeah. And one of the things with the antibodies that I didn't really know about too much is that they have a kind of a short lifespan and they disappear from your blood after a few weeks or months, depending on how strong your immune system response was. And it's really these other cells in your body that kind of remember what those antibodies were. So if the Same pathogen comes back into your body. Obviously, we're talking about COVID-19. If you get infected again or Mm -hmm. something, these other cells are the ones that remanufacture those antibodies. So there's a lot of other stuff involved in really making your body continue to fight these diseases.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's a really important point to, I think, drive home. So specifically about the antibodies, you're exactly right. Those are molecules made by the body by a population called B cells. And it's sort of the difference between, you know, that old adage like, you know, give a person a fish and they eat for a day, teach them how to fish and they can eat for life. Those antibodies are pretty temporary. But what is really important are those B cells, which remember how to make those antibodies against the virus itself. And so what you really want is those B cells to stick around. Some of them will kind of go dormant after you've recovered from an infection. And under ideal circumstances, they'll hang around in your body. So of them will keep dividing or just hang out for a really long time in the bone marrow. And then if that pathogen kind of comes to invade your body again, they will recognize that the pathogen has come back and manufacture those antibodies for a second time. And the response will be even stronger and faster than before, possibly so fast and so strong that you may not even experience symptoms a second time.
0: Yeah, of course, that's what everybody would hope for that they can have. So there's also, there's B cells and then there's T cells, a T as in Tom. And some mm-hmm. of these cells also help in this uh, same thing, uh, manufacturing and helping fight the viruses once they come back.
2: So B cells and T cells are kind of two prongs of what's called the adaptive immune response. And that's the kind of slow wave that kicks in roughly a week into infection, depending on what pathogen we're really talking about. And T cells serve kind of a different function. Like, I guess I see B cells as weapon factories. They're making antibodies, whereas T cells can actually accomplish a lot on their own. T cells can either help B cells make antibodies, so they're sort of supporting the antibody factories as they're churning these really important disease-fighting molecules out, or T cells can sort of fight their own war. They can actually identify your own cells like the rest of the cells in your body, like the cells that might line your airway, recognize the ones that have been infected with a virus and actually send them signals to tell them to self-destruct because at that point they figure that cell's a lost cause, it's been infected with a pathogen. The best way to deal with the situation is to make that cell get rid of itself and that will also theoretically destroy the viruses inside of it.
0: Do we have any information yet? I know we're very uncertain on this whole thing. I had been reading about a study in South Korea that basically said some people that have retested positive again for coronavirus Mm. weren't shedding active particles of the virus. In other words, they were clearing all those people. If you had COVID-19 and you recovered, you were no longer infectious to other people. So it kind of plays into this whole thing. But has there been any other studies going around? That's the only one that I've seen, really.
2: I'm glad you brought up that bit of news because I think there's a little bit of nuance there that's maybe important to get into. I feel like there were a few reports coming out in early days talking about reinfection, like people were testing positive, having symptoms, then recovering and testing negative. And in this case, I'm talking about the test that looks for the virus, not antibodies. So this is a diagnostic test that can tell whether or not the virus is in your body and probably active. People were testing positive, then negative, then positive again. And people were wondering, are people getting reinfected? Does that mean that these people aren't immune to the virus and we're just doomed to get infected over and over again? I think a lot of experts have since come forward to say that these people probably were fighting the virus. The virus sort of declined to very low, difficult to detect levels in their body and the tests were missing the virus because it was so scarce in the body. And then after some time, maybe the immune system kind of relaxed and the virus maybe took the opportunity to sort of surge back to higher levels, levels that were maybe triggering another bout of symptoms or making the virus detectable by these tests again. And so I think in that sense, it's really difficult to say exactly what was going on inside the body, but You know, that isn't necessarily bad news. There are a lot of pathogens, including viruses, bacteria, parasites, that can kind of linger in the body. But if we're able to detect this early, this won't necessarily be universal for everyone. And we can develop treatments that can either keep the virus at extremely low levels so that people aren't experiencing symptoms or aren't shedding the virus. That's kind of what happens with HIV. And people can, you know, live very long, healthy lives in that case. Or, you know, this will kind of inform When can we sort of target and treat the virus so that it doesn't establish maybe a population in the body that's going to be this long lasting? But I definitely don't want to give people the impression that this is the norm or that they're going to be stuck with this virus permanently, just that that could be the case for a subpopulation of people.
0: Catherine Wu, science reporter at Smithsonian Magazine, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you.